In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Let me start by reading again the passage that Christina just read for us. Follow along with me. Hebrews chapter 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Well, it's pretty clear that in these four verses, the writer is trying to draw some comparisons. That's how he starts and that's how he ends. So look at verse 1. In the past, God spoke through the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken by his son. And similarly, in verse 4, that son has become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Clearly, the author is trying to draw comparisons. That's worth pointing out that there are times, of course, when to draw comparisons is actually deeply unhelpful. Uh, If you're always comparing to others, it can lead to pride or to envy. Uh, It's for that reason that I think Sophie DeWitt's brilliant little book, Compared to Her, I've listed it there for you on your handout. Each week I'll give you a book recommendation because it's good for people to keep learning and growing apart from what you hear on a Sunday. Uh, Sophie DeWitt's brilliant little book, Compared to Her, I think ought to be compulsory reading for every Christian, male or female. You see, she says that every person suffers from what she calls compulsive comparison syndrome. Compulsive comparison syndrome. I see some smiles around here. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, This is the habit that we have of spending our lives either comparing down, so we feel good about ourselves, or comparing up, at which point we feel worthless. But at other times, drawing comparisons can actually help us to better interpret our circumstances. Uh, Comparisons can help us to overflow with thankfulness, Colossians 2. Drawing comparisons can help us see all the things that we do have, not dwell on those things that we don't. So, for example, when saying grace, it's entirely right to pray, Lord, make us mindful of those who have even less than we do. If you're stuck in a waiting room, in a hospital waiting room, waiting to be seen, well, it's right to be reminded that in many parts of the world, a diagnosis is useless because you can't get the prescribed medication anyway. And likewise, every time you have annual leave, let alone long service leave, for those of us who are fortunate enough, it's good to be reminded that 
for the vast majority globally, if you do not work on any given day, you do not eat. Uh, This gives rise to that delightful old-fashioned saying, that old-fashioned exhortation to count your blessings, to count your blessings, that you might see that in comparison to so many, actually things are pretty good. Well, the reason why the writer draws comparisons in Hebrews chapter 1 is to highlight for us what God is doing, verse 1, verse 2, in these last days, in these last days. Now, it's true, God has always spoken. In the past, he spoke through the prophets and through angels. And that in and of itself is truly remarkable. See, God never gave us the silent treatment, uh, even though we gave him the brush off. Yes, God has always spoken, but now, in his Son, he has really spoken. And the writer of the Hebrews is inviting us to marvel at the difference in magnitude of this new communication. It's like we're being asked to compare someone texting you or tweeting with a one-on-one sit-down over a long lunch. So we're being told, pay attention, listen up, this is going to be worth hearing. Well, the second observation from the passage is that it's based on the qualifications of the Son. Verses 2 and 3 are the heart of the passage. And here, the writer offers three extravagant descriptions of God's mouthpiece, his Son, as he describes his qualifications. What he is like, what he has done, why he is better by comparison. Superior in every way. Look at the three descriptions there. I printed there for you on your handout so that you can see them again. Firstly, the son whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The son through whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. We're being told that the son was there at the beginning as the agent of creation But we're also being told that he will be there at the very end. The son is not an afterthought. He is not a plan B. Everything that was made was made for him, which is a great honour indeed. No one else is ever allowed to say, it's all about me, except for Jesus. Uh, Perhaps that's why the author in verse 2 moves backwards chronologically. You notice he starts at the end and then moves to the beginning. Uh, Perhaps that's because the end is primary. The destination matters more than the origin. And we are living in the last days, in the final stage of God's great plan. Well, second qualification of the sun... The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. The sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. 
Let me just pause for a moment and acknowledge that the eagle-eyed amongst us will have realised that the passage doesn't actually refer to Jesus at any point. It talks about the Son, but it doesn't mention Jesus. Uh, For the sake of simplicity, I've assumed that when the writer speaks of the Son, he's actually talking about Jesus. Although that might make you wonder why it is that he speaks about God rather than the more natural parallel of Father, which would go with Son. Whatever the reason, the writer's point, I think, is that Jesus is fully God in every way. And so to borrow John's language, if you have seen the Son, if you've seen Jesus, you have seen God the Father in all his glory. Now this Son, who is the agent of creation, who is the heir of all things, He continues to be intimately involved in God's world. He is not disengaged in any way. We're told that he sustains all things. And the way in which he rules over God's world is by his powerful word. Which is such a great comfort. Because as our society society rapidly corrodes... We can start wondering if God is still active in our world. Fear not. He is. So even if you can't sense his involvement, even if you are unable to discern his hand at work, please listen to his word, which will not return to him empty. It will achieve the purposes for which he has sent it, even to the ends of the earth. The third qualification of the Son is that after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. After he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Of all the works of Christ that the writer could have focused on, of all the attributes of Jesus that the writer could have highlighted to show that he is better by comparison, the one that he chooses to dwell on is the one thing that no one else is qualified to do. He provided purification for sins. Now when the writer says this, clearly the writer must mean final purification because the Old Testament sacrificial system was set up and designed to provide purification, atonement. The problem was... It was only ever temporary, only ever in part. By contrast, Christ provides the final and complete purification for sins, which is such a great relief. It's such a great relief because the blood of bulls and goats and animals sacrificed could never permanently remove sin, which means that without Christ you and I would still be stained by our sin, accountable for our misconduct, and facing death for our transgressions. Well, the confirmation that Christ's purifying work is final and complete is that we're told there in verse 3, after he'd done so, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty, which is a lovely image, Um, I think it carries one of two delightful nuances. You see, for the son to sit down, both says, mission accomplished, 
and place of honour. Mission accomplished and place of honour. Mission accomplished, Christ is sitting, not standing, because his work is done. If this is not too casual a language, you could say that Jesus has put his feet up because he's done what he came to do. Mission accomplished, but at the same time, place of honour. Christ is sitting, not kneeling before God. You might say he has a seat at the table. He belongs in God's company. You see, although it's true that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever, in some way, by providing purification for sin, the Son has become superior to angels. And so he's entitled to an even greater honour. For his self-sacrifice, for the sins of men and women everywhere, it is right that God exalt him now to the highest place and give him now the name that is above all names, that at his name now every knee should bow and every tongue acknowledge that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Son is better in every way. Well, there are the two observations about the passage. So what? What does it mean for us? Well, tonight, I want to point us to the one in whom and because of whom we have life and hope. And yet sometimes he can fade from view. Today, I want to bring him into the foreground, into the light once more, to help you fix your eyes on him and to warm your heart. The reason I want to do that is because for many of us, we've lost sight of the Lord Jesus. There's a whole number of reasons why. Here are just a few. Perhaps the reason we've lost sight of the Lord Jesus is because, well, we're inherently forgetful. Uh, Memories fade with time. Uh, That's not a moral judgment, that's just a statement of fact. And we, of course, we live by faith and not by sight, which means that the phrase, out of sight, out of mind, that makes sense. One of the regrets, I think, of long-term believers is that with time they find themselves unable to recall the first thrill of conversion, especially when they meet others who have just turned to Christ and they seem just so alive and so different. Maybe the reason why we've lost sight of our Lord Jesus Christ is because greater scientific understanding about our world how it operates, our ability to manipulate it and control it for our end, makes us start to think that, in fact, the world is entirely predictable. So, for example, the fact that the supermarket shelves are always stocked does make me think at times that I don't really need to pray, give us today our daily bread, because I know that Coles will. Maybe the reason why we've lost sight of our Lord Jesus is because, well, life is just so good here in Adelaide. Uh, 
certainly in comparison with the rest of Australia, right? I mean, we have everything here, don't we? We have food and wine. We have a festival every weekend. We have the best climate. I mean, is not autumn and spring the most magical seasons in the entire universe here in Adelaide? We have affordable housing. You don't have to spend all your time in traffic driving to get there. I suspect that's the reason why so few unbelievers want to consider Christ. They have no need to. And I fear that's the reason why so many believers stagnate in their growth because, well, you pray when you're needy, not when you're not. And all too often, our faith will grow only in adversity, not much in prosperity. Maybe the reason why we've lost sight of the Lord Jesus is because we've been overwhelmed by the trials of life. The challenges at work, maybe the lack of work, the complication of relationship failures, the struggle just to make ends meet. Or perhaps the reason we've lost sight of Jesus is because we're enduring yet more suffering that's pushed you to the brink of despair. Let down once again by God's people. Ground down once again by the disappointment of ordinariness. Or struck down by your own sinfulness. Who he hasn't thought, surely after all this time, I would be more like Christ. At the top of the first page of my talk, I've written this sentence. At the end of this talk, I want my hearers to dot, dot, dot. Uh, it's the principle that if you can't state your objective in one sentence, you almost certainly won't hit it. So here's what I wrote for this talk. At the end of this talk, I want my hearers to rejoice that Jesus is better. I want my hearers to rejoice that Jesus is better. Because whatever your circumstances, whatever your situation, whatever your struggle, indeed whatever your suffering, what will sustain you in these last days is the conviction that, by comparison, God's Son is better. He is in every way superior. For what he has done and who he is and therefore, what you can be certain that he will do, Jesus will always be supreme. So let me turn then to the one possible application. How might the comparisons drawn in verses 1 through 4 help you to rejoice that Jesus is better? That's what I printed there on the bottom of your handout. How might the comparisons drawn in Hebrews 1 to 4 help you to rejoice that Jesus is better? Well, let me give you two suggestions. The first is, don't just point out the inferiority of the lesser or the former. Make sure you dwell on the superiority of what is better. Don't just point out the inferiority of the lesser or what was former. That's an important thing to do, lest you ever settle. But above all, make sure you dwell on the superiority of what is better. 
Let me give you an example. Uh, if you want, you could do, as an experiment, you could try watching movies on different formats that are available. So what you'd do if you wanted to do this experiment is that you'd start with beta. Now, my guess is that probably the vast majority don't even know what beta is. That was the thing that came before, wait for it, VHS. Now, this is, you're starting to remember this, right? Those are those big video cassette things. Try watching a movie on beta or then VHS. Then afterwards, well, why don't you watch a movie on DVD? And then after that, if you want, watch a movie on Blu-ray. And then after that, you can watch a movie on, I've discovered the latest thing, is called Ultra HD. Now, before you do, you scoff that anything could be that good. The thing is, once you have, you know you'll never go back. I want to urge you, keep rereading the Old Testament. Keep seeing how God spoke through the prophets and even through angels. You do it not to highlight its inadequacies. You do it so that you might be more dazzled by Christ's splendour when you are finally and inevitably and thankfully led to him. Don't just point out the inferiority of the lesser. Make sure you dwell on the superiority of what is better. And the second suggestion uh, to enable us to rejoice that Jesus is better, well, because we so quickly forget those blessings that we have counted... We need constant reminders, constant reminders of the Son's superiority. And that's why Hebrews chapter 12 will urge us to fix our eyes on Jesus. Fix our eyes on Jesus, which is a deliberate, intentional, even costly decision to look at him instead of being distracted by everything else. So how do you do that? How do you fix your eyes on Jesus? Well, again, two practical suggestions. The first is, when Jesus speaks, please make sure you give him your full attention. When Jesus speaks, please make sure you give him your full attention. I get very annoyed when I'm talking to someone and they don't put down their phone. Or worse, when they pick it up mid-sentence and start texting even mid of their own sentence. I find that very off-putting. So if I give you an example for me of what it means to make sure that I give Jesus my full attention, uh, over recent years I've started doing my daily devotions first thing in the morning. What I've discovered is that if I do them first thing in the morning, they are always better than if I do them at any other point in the day. Uh, even if I've set aside time, they're always better if I do them first thing in the morning. And I worked out why this week. I worked out why. It's because sleep is like rebooting your computer. Sleep is like rebooting your computer. You know when your computer hangs because it's got too many programs running and so you just hit the reset button and it starts again and it runs smoothly, at least for a short amount of time? I think that's what, at least for me not being distracted means. Do my devotions first thing before all the to-do lists of the day have come into my mind. 
When he speaks, give him your full attention. Second suggestion, uh, well, church is about to finish in just a moment. Uh, we're going to head across to supper. Please do join us there. Can I urge you, at supper, resolve to tell someone why for you Jesus is better. Resolve to tell someone why for you Jesus is better. Now, don't be me. As you talk over supper, by all means, share about your week, share about your interests, talk about your struggles, celebrate your successes. Those are good things to share with each other. They are part of the privilege of being part of just such a wonderful community like this one. But can I urge you, make sure you also share something about him and why he is better. Because... After all, he is the author and perfecter of our faith. Ultimately, to sing someone's praises, to sing someone's praises means more than just telling them what they already know about themselves. It means telling others that they might learn to sing that song as well and rejoice with us as well. And so with that in mind... I'm going to commission us with the words that the writer will use in chapter 13. At the very end of the book, let me read them out to finish. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead the Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, may he equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory for ever and ever. Amen. Let me lead us in prayer. High King of Heaven, my victory won, may I reach heaven's joys, O bright heaven's sun. Heart of my own heart, whatever befall, still be my vision, O ruler of all. Amen.